everyone, and welcome to the Scientist Podcast. Today is a real treat. I'm speaking to someone on the very edge of gene editing technology. He initially trained as a doctor before co-founding Scribe, which we're about to hear all about. I feel incredibly lucky to be able to introduce Dr. Benjamin Oakes. Benjamin, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Well, listen, there's a few things we want to talk about today. But the first is this. CRISPR technology has been described as being able to potentially, and I'm quoting here, cure heritable diseases, increase food security, and counter the impacts of climate change. Already infamously, twin girls have been born in China with CRISPR-edited genomes. So before we jump into your particular journey and into Scribe and what they do, I want to ask, what is CRISPR technology and how does it function? Yeah, so that's a great question. Specifically, CRISPR technology is the latest advance in genome editing technology. It is a system that has been co-opted from bacteria that bacteria essentially use as an immune surveillance system to find and destroy invading viruses. And the way these bacteria do this is by using a molecular machine, a, a protein, an enzyme that can cut DNA and then a piece of RNA that matches that piece of DNA. And if that RNA matches, the CRISPR enzyme will actually cut DNA. Now, what my mentor and co-founder actually discovered in 2012, and what she was recently awarded the Nobel for, was how to utilize the system out of bacteria. How can we co-opt it for our own uses? And I think this is really been transformative to biology because of the programmable nature of the RNA. So taking a step back, actually, what exactly is genome editing? And what is genome editing today? And how is it enabled? Genome editing is enabled by creating a double-strand break in DNA. And then that DNA is repaired by the cell. And very often that repair can be error-prone. So what CRISPR systems allow us to do is programmably, essentially like a control find or control F button in, in a word processor, find a location in the genome and then change it. Sometimes we have good control over that change. Other times we don't, but it is such a huge step forward in biology to be able to do this anywhere you want in a genome. It now allows us to ask questions about any location in the genome that we weren't able to ask before. So I guess in brief, CRISPR technology is the ability to, to programmably find and change any location in any genome. And this is, I think, the, really the breakthrough, obviously, of the past 10 years, but I think will define the next 100, which is what you're getting to with plants, food security, medicine, hopefully not the, yeah, the human germline yet. So that's fascinating. Just to outline that, beforehand, you could make cuts, quote unquote, in DNA, and the cell would repair it. But presumably that was an error-strewn process, and as far as we were concerned, in co-opting those improvements for our own needs. But then what CRISPR technology does is effectively allow us to make the changes that we want. No, actually, I would say that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Ah, perfect. Um, yeah, so what CRISPR technology allows us to do is make a cut where we want. So prior to CRISPR technology, there were other technologies known as zinc finger nucleases, tail effector nucleases, or tail effector domains that you could hook up to a nucleus. And essentially, all of these were roundabout ways of targeting a location of DNA. And actually, I spent the early part of my career engineering zinc finger nucleases to accomplish this exact goal. But they were very difficult to build, especially on a research budget. 
And what CRISPR allows you to do, you know, and what I realized very quickly having engineered zinc finger nucleases for two years was essentially all of my time and energy I had spent engineering zinc fingers over two years could be boiled down to 15 minutes with someone on the computer. So what CRISPR allows us to do is programmably target any location in the human genome or nearly any location in the human genome, essentially at will. Most of those changes are not as defined as we would like just yet, though. And that's potentially where Scribe comes in. And just to zoom out here a little, I'd love you to talk a little bit about how you got to Scribe. You know, you trained as a doctor, which I thought was fascinating, because most people who train as doctors decide that they want to follow that through to becoming doctors. But you've taken a slightly different route, and I'd love if you could just outline a little bit of the context as to how you are where you are. Yeah, you know, I think what you what you find when you go do a PhD is actually most people started out thinking they were going to be an MD. I specifically, I always really loved research biology, and I, I really thought I was going to be an MD PhD for for all of my collegiate career. And I had worked in a number of labs prior to that, and I always loved research biology, so I always wanted to combine the two, medicine with research biology. But when I actually uh, in my junior year of college at, at Colby College in, in Waterville, Maine, a small liberal arts institution. I was actually double major in philosophy and neurobiology. And this was my first experience really spending a full, you know, essentially full-time shadowing doctors in rural Maine. And what I realized throughout this process uh, of about you know three months of shadowing doctors in the emergency room was that the vast majority of medicine that I was at least being exposed to at that point in time, couldn't actually solve the underlying problems that these people were coming in with. A good example would be someone would come in with pain or come in with essentially nausea, and you would prescribe them opiates or you prescribe them anti-nausea medication, and you would send them home. And I know that this is an oversimplification of medicine because it was the emergency room and your, your goal is to really stabilize patients at that point. But for me, it was kind of eye-opening just how little we actually could treat the underlying causes of most diseases. And that set me on this whole new path. I mean, I had taken the MCATs. I, you know, I had started applications. And I said, look, it, it was difficult for me to imagine just treating the symptoms. And I wanted to you know, start this new journey specifically to try to treat the underlying causes. And that's really what I've been working on for, you know, for the past decade now. So effectively, you were training to be a doctor and saw clearly in an emergency room what you're needing to do is, as you say, stabilize. But nonetheless, there was a relative lack of, well, how are we preventing these diseases from coming about? How are we curing them more fundamentally? And that sparked you to want to look at, I'm imagining, gene editing, because I imagine what's going to happen is you're going to tell me that in some ways, if we can edit the genes, then we can start preventing the diseases. Yes, that's exactly correct. Right. So. I graduated from Colby and applied to a number of different technicianships, specifically focused on synthetic biology and molecular engineering with an eye towards how do we modify the underlying genes that control biological systems. I was fortunate enough to actually find a position in a small fellowship lab in Princeton University under the mentorship of a a younger fellow by the name of Marcus Noyes. And when I say fellow, I mean actually like a essentially super postdoc. He had a small lab for uh, with essentially enough funding for two people, myself and one other technician. And our goal in that lab 
prior to CRISPR really being understood as a genome editing system was to build this first generation of genome editing technologies known as zinc finger nucleases. So uh, let me actually take a step back. Zinc fingers exist in the human body as transcription factors. There's over 800 of them that our own cells utilize to regulate, to turn DNA on or off. And what was realized back in the early 90s was that you could co-opt these these transcription factors that bind a specific sequence of DNA. You could hook them up to, once again, another bacterial protein, a bacterial nucleus known as FOC1. And you could potentially retarget them to other locations to cut that piece of DNA. And this you know, harkens back to the early age of genetic engineering when we realized that creating a break in DNA was a way to modify that location. And work had been going on on zinc finger nucleases, you know, since really 1995, when the discovery of how to fuse these two uh, or zinc fingers to a nucleus was made. And in 2011, when I started working on them, they were really actually just starting to be utilized pretty robustly as human genome editing proteins. At that time, there was a company called Sangamo that still exists today and that's using zinc finger nucleases to modify the human genome. But they were really the only company that could programmably make or that can make programmable DNA binding proteins. So we set out on this journey to build essentially an open source library of proteins that could bind any location in the human genome. That was the mission, at least. But what that entails for a zinc finger nucleus, because they're very difficult to engineer, is actually engineering a large library of of proteins. So we're talking, you know, millions to billions of different versions of a zinc finger nucleus. And then testing that on a single sequence you want to cut, right? Like, so you would essentially build these massive libraries via what's known as uh, combinatorial cassette mutagenesis, which is essentially just randomizing a region of a protein and then asking it what combines to a specific sequence. So let's say GCG. So you find a zinc finger that binds GCG. Now, to recognize a specific location in the human genome, you need to bind 18 base pairs of DNA specifically. Zinc fingers recognize three at a time which means you need to create two zinc fingers that recognize at least nine base pairs each. Each of these selections was in its own independent thing. So to target a single location was a very laborious process and something that we essentially tried to build. And I think we're, we're actually you know, quite successful in the end to build comprehensive data sets about what sorts of proteins could bind what sequences. Of course, by the time we were successful, two years later, didn't matter as much. (laughs) Because? Because in mid-2012, you know, Martin Janak, Jennifer, uh, Christophe Chalinski, and Emmanuel Charpentier published their seminal work on how to utilize a molecule known as CRISPR-Cas9 specifically. And everything that I was doing could be boiled down to someone programming a bit of RNA on a computer. Was that a discovery, that paper that came out that changed the game? Was that something that was on the medical and scientific horizon or did that come out of the blue? So let me put it this way. For me, at least, CRISPR was, was not in my mindset. At the time, zinc finger nucleases were very much working. They were working in human patient cells. Um, there was a secondary technology called uh, talon, talons, which are tail domain nucleases or tail nucleases. And they were a bit more programmable than zinc fingers, but had a myriad of their own issues in terms of actually being able to engineer them and clone them. 
so when I read Jennifer's paper in 2012, I mean, I remember the day it came out. I remember reading it and I remember saying, like, Marcus, like, this is amazing. For me, number one, I mean, CRISPR had been a, a kind of a burgeoning field for the previous 10 years. People were discovering that CRISPR systems were these adaptive bacterial immune systems. So an adaptive immune system is something that can learn from its environment versus the innate immune system. So us as humans have both, but it was really thought that bacteria had, at least when I was taught biology, it was bacteria had innate immune systems and that was it. So unbeknownst to me for the, you know, the probably roughly the 10 years before CRISPR-Cas9 was discovered, people were realizing that CRISPR systems existed as adaptive bacterial immune systems. But I read Jennifer's paper and that was my first experience to this idea. So first my mind was blown that bacteria could adapt to their environment at like a genomic level, which is what CRISPR systems do. But second, I literally saw all of the work I was doing for the past two years kind of get boiled down into program 20 base pairs of RNA and you're done. And I immediately was ready to, was ready to move on. Was that a strangely liberating experience? Hugely liberating. Because now you can stop, and I use the term extremely liberally, given they were working, and it was amazing that they were working medically and scientifically. But you could stop, quote unquote, messing around with the zinc fingers, which is the opposite of what you were doing, clearly. But just in terms of how quick you could now do the same thing, and how precisely. I think the real switch, you go from essentially spending all of your time, all of your energy, all of your thought on how to specify a specific location, how to target that one underlying cause of disease to saying that targeting problem's gone. We can target it now, right? Now we can spend all of our energy on how to make the tools that we have better in other ways, more specific, more active, more deliverable, right? And actually during my PhD, even more fun ways, how can we turn them into switches? How can we create things that have never before existed? So it was hugely liberating. Because all, all of a sudden, you're now not wrestling with how do we make this thing accurate and it's targeting. You go, okay, that's in the bank. How do we now make use of this in the real world? So that brings up sort of two questions. But the first is, how did you end up working with Jennifer? Um, how did you end up getting involved with Scribe or starting Scribe? Yeah, so first is working with Jennifer. I obviously uh, moved on from my technicianship. I, I saw this work and I was like, Marcus, we got to start doing this. This is amazing. And that being said, his lab was pretty, you know, pretty dedicated and involved with zinc for your nucleases. So I knew it was time for me to transition to graduate, graduate school. So I applied to many different graduate schools, was fortunate enough to kind of have my choice of where I wanted to go. But when I came out to UC Berkeley during my interviews and I, I spoke to Dave Savage, who was actually my co-mentor, as well as Jennifer Doudna, um, I knew immediately that there was no, no other place that I was going to be. Um, and my goal was to come into graduate school. I had a very specific plan uh, to be a joint student between Dave Savage and Jennifer and Jennifer Doudna, specifically to apply the expertise from both of their labs into kind of my own vision for what we could create for genome editing proteins. So I think obviously Jennifer needs much less of an introduction, you know, amazing scientist, amazing mentor really pushing the boundaries of, of what we know about CRISPR systems at that point in time. When I joined, very focused on understanding the structural biology and the biochemistry of, of Cas9. But Dave has more of a unique uh, niche, actually. Dave's lab is split into two halves. One is all about how microorganisms can fix carbon, which is also, I don't know if everyone knows this, but bacteria 
do have organelles. So you're taught in school that eukaryotes are the only cells that have organelles. Bacteria have organelles as well. They're just proteinaceous. And some of them, they used to fix carbon. Another mind-blowing experience that, that, that uh, you know, as a young scientist, I learned pretty quickly and was fascinating. But the other side of Dave's lab that's not fixing carbon is actually very focused on, or was very focused on developing new ways of thinking about protein engineering. So as I talked about with zinc finger nucleases, I was doing what's known as combinatorial cassette mutagenesis or random mutagenesis, which is changing the building blocks of proteins one at a time or many at a time, but keeping them really, for the most part, in the exact same position. In Dave's lab, I came in to kind of pioneer what we were viewing as this entirely new way of thinking about protein engineering that we termed topological mutagenesis, which is actually something that you see quite a bit in nature which is the, a rearrangement of protein domains, where we can actually take the beginning of a protein, put it at the end of the protein, or insert something entirely different into, into a protein. And what this allows you to do is build in entirely new functionalities, whereas mutagenesis allows you to kind of tweak what's going on and you know, take small steps towards change. The topological mutagenesis allows us to, to create entirely new ways that these proteins can work. It's quite interesting, and actually it is the biggest difference that you see between bacterial proteins and human proteins is the fact that they have this sort of domain accretion that allows them to build on new functionalities. So you go from graduate school at, at Berkeley and you're sort of operating between these two spaces. How quickly as a graduate student do you manage to find yourself working very directly with, uh, in Jennifer's case, your sort of advisor? I mean, both Dave and Jennifer are extremely available. So, you know, from Actually, my rotation project in Jennifer's lab led to our first paper demonstrating how Cas9 could bind RNA. So that was, you know, within three months. Wow. And then from there, when did you formalize Scribe as, a, as an institution? Yeah. So I, I went through graduate school kind of developing these new techniques. And actually, one of my, you know, the last works that I was involved in was just dropped on bioarchive by Dave's lab. But we, we essentially did topological mutagenesis of, of CRISPR-Cas9, Cas9, this very first molecule. We did domain insertion to create an allosteric Cas9, which is a Cas9 that can switch on or off with a small molecule drug. We then did circular permutation of Cas9 holistically to create Cas9s that could, were, were essentially caged and would only turn on when the cell was infected or when inside of the cell there was another protein known as a protease that would uncage Cas9. So we essentially created two sense and respond, very synthetic Cas9-based systems. And that being said, well, that's very fun. It was very fun, very interesting work. It, was, it became clear towards the end of my graduate career that the tools and the technologies that we had for therapeutic use, kind of bringing it back around, it's easy to get lost in science in graduate school and get really excited about the novelty for novelty's sake. But stemming from actually my philosophy background, pragmatism has always driven or driven my way of viewing the world. And I began to realize towards the end of graduate school that, you know, these really exciting tools are very interesting and we've developed entirely new ways of engineering proteins. But what the world needs today for, from a therapeutic perspective is something else. And that was really the birth of Scribe. Fascinating. How do you in practice build a switch, an on-off biological switch, such that this works or alternatively something that at upon the point of infection it switches on. Yeah. So proteins are molecular machines and they, they, they do certain things. 
imagine one molecular machine that opens and closes. And it essentially is open in its normal state and it closes when it binds a small molecule, when it binds a drug. What we were able to do was take that switch, which you can, you can already imagine, going from an open to a closed state when it binds a drug, and insert it into nearly every location in Cas9 and essentially break Cas9 in the open conformation and have Cas9 work only when it's in the closed conformation. This is this sort of transduction of, of protein structure to activity is what's known as allosteric. And we were able to find a very specific site within Cas9 that enabled this sort of allosteric regulation of double-stranded DNA binding and cleavage activity. Very interesting. I have sort of stumbled upon a big one already, but I'm interested in the other misconceptions about gene editing technology. It sounds quite futuristic. And, you know, I reference here the historic concerns some people have had about, for example, editing the genes of common crops to, say, make them more durable in bad weather. Mm-hmm. Is there kind of a skepticism or a misplaced concern about any of the technologies or not just yet? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that I'm not skeptical that we'll be able to do that as the field of scientists or as the population, really as a society. I think that one of the, you know, a misconception that we have is that now that we have these tools, we can do whatever we want. And, and the truth is that we still don't understand the genome. We don't understand the human genome well enough to be able to make these changes. When you get into the field of agriculture, there are many, you know, extremely smart people currently working on understanding the genomes of crops more deeply. But in order to make those changes, I'm confident we can make them. But we have to know what to do. We don't know what to do yet. So that would be one. Well, that brings me up to the one to a follow-up I've been really interested to ask, which is, what does the optimistic timescale look like for this technology working across different diseases? Yeah, I mean, optimistically, it's working today. So when we think about cell therapies, CRISPR Therapeutics and Vertex just announced additional data coming out of their clinical trials to treat the underlying cause of sickle cell. Genome editing as a whole, as I mentioned, a company by the name of Sangamo has been using zinc nucleases. And while CRISPR allows us to, to really target anything we want much more quickly, if you have a very specific goal, you can utilize a zinc nucleus, right? As was our goal. And Sangamo also has data demonstrating that genome editing within the human body does work, you know, does in, in, in these instances appear to be safe so far. So optimistic timeline is it's already happening. The research you produce is only as good as the way you communicate it. Scientist Studio is an exciting science communication company that brings your research to life through a variety of services. From as little as £59, a summary of your work can be narrated, illustrated and animated, leaving you with an engaging video to share with the world. If that wasn't enough, as a podcast listener, you can get 10% off any Scientist Studio service using the code PODCAST when you order. Simply head to our website or find us on Twitter to get started. I've seen Parkinson's be discussed in the context of gene editing. Is that something that you know anything about uh, or have any experience working with? There are a number of disorders that are more amenable to genome editing. Specifically, we're very focused on disorders where we really truly do understand the underlying cause. So as I just talked about, there, you know, the misconception is that we understand the genome. We sequenced the genome back in 2000. Of course, we understand the whole thing. But I mean, essentially what we've been able to do is we were able to open the book and, and begin to read this, the four letters that are the genome 
in their sequence, but we don't know what they do yet. You know, that being said, there are diseases such as the specific underlying genetics of diseases such as ALS that are known to be causative for, you know, the phenotype of some disease. And in those instances, you know, for ALS, for something like Huntington's disease, it's, it's easier to start to hypothesize how we could treat that with the genome editing-based approach. Parkinson's is, is much more stratified. The genetics are not nearly as well understood. And while there may be certain causative mutations in some genes that are beginning to be sussed out, they seem to be more correlative, which is more difficult. So interesting. I mean, it's amazing quite how far along the technology is already, especially when you consider its potential to change the underlying causes of disease, which I guess was the initial appeal of getting involved here. Would you say that the bottleneck on treating more diseases and more quickly using this tech is the understanding genetically of those diseases, or is it anything to do with the technology itself? So it's, it's twofold. First is understanding, right? I mean, there are many diseases that are more widespread you know, Alzheimer's, like you said, Parkinson's, where the underlying genetics of just why this is happening is not understood. And perhaps there's many environmental factors as well. And I think that understanding is going to prevent us from addressing those diseases directly until we continue to get more and more information and demonstrate, you know, newer and newer ways of of treating them. But there are many technical challenges as well. And that's really what Scribe is focused on solving. That's obviously where my background is as a protein engineer is, you know, a technological challenge. I'm very comfortable at driving at and solving with, with all of our energy. And specifically, when we think about that, we think about three technological challenges for genome editing molecules as they stand today to treat the underlying cause of disease that we understand. First is efficacy, which is the ability to actually modulate the genome at a high rate right? You can think about this as what percentage of cells that you can get your genome editing molecule into do you actually modify? And the greater percentages of cells you can modify with the lower amount of genome editing protein, the perhaps safer your therapeutic can be from a number of different standpoints and the more drug you can make. Because what you're essentially doing is you're turning the genome into its own drug. Really interesting. So that's the first one. Yeah. So the second one is specificity. And for us, specificity means a number of things. Specificity is important because we want to target only one site in the human genome, of course, right? You don't want to modify multiple sites in the human genome because there might be what's known as off-target effects. But in addition to specificity from an off-target effects standpoint, which you know is a concern, but perhaps not as much of a concern as people were initially worried about, we're very focused on creating molecules that can target the underlying causes of diseases that are caused by a single nucleotide polymorphism, or what's essentially a single base pair change in DNA. And that single change is actually much more difficult to recognize with any of the genome targeting proteins that we have today, zinc fingers, talons, CRISPR, because those small changes, you're talking about changing recognition of a very small aspect of your targeting sequence are just, you know, biophysically harder for the proteins to recognize. Now, that being said, it is possible. And we are engineering proteins that can have very exquisite specificity, single nucleotide polymorphism specificity. Yeah, it's interesting. There are sort of these biological barriers to entry too, right? Which force the technology to adapt and adjust. Before we finish up, I'm just really wanting to find out about your role, your dual role, as I see it, in the science and the engineering, but also as the business in Scribe. 
clearly Scribe is now, you know, it's, it's a large company uh, and it's very well funded. And I was just wondering how you juggle the two. It's a good question. My heart is very much in both. And I think this comes back to my pragmatic background or my pragmatic, you know, my guiding, my guiding principles that allow me to say, you know, science, is, I, I find so much enjoyment out of taking the next step and iteratively making a better and better technology that is more well adapted to be a therapeutic, to developing entirely new technologies that can enhance the ability of us to use this therapeutic, for example, in the delivery space. But on the flip side, we have to recognize that these are not going to go anywhere. They're not going to be useful unless we can build a business to support both the discovery and the development of these tools into actual therapeutics. So I get just as much, I get just as much excitement and motivation from watching this business grow and develop towards essentially putting drugs into the clinic as, as I do out of the science. And that's actually a discovery for me personally. <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating that it's gone that way. I mean, it makes sense. If your guiding principle is this pragmatism, and clearly the way to get these drugs into people and affecting diseases in a positive way is to have them as viable economic products. Well, then in some ways, it's no surprise that you're excited about that. But with that said, you know, lots of academics aren't so excited about it. So it's sort of a happy coincidence in lots of ways. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, there for, for a long time, it's, at some level, biotech has been looked down on in academia. But I think that as the development of research biology is continuing and we're developing, you know, greater and greater assets to begin to modulate biology in the real world, that has lessened. And I think that, you know, the feeling that you're describing is actually one we're seeing shift away as academics are seeing that their technologies can be applied in the real world. So I think you have this entirely new wave of scientists, a wave that I belong to, that is interested in both discovering new things, understanding you know, the very basic biology of how something works, but then also applying that and applying that really to hopefully continue to make the world just a bit better. Dr. Oaks, thank you so much for being here. It was great to chat. Thank you very much. Everyone at home, thank you for listening. And we'll see you again, as always, next week on The Scientist Podcast.